This is Jeff Chrisman, and I'm here today with musician Jeremy Thomas. We're at the Art Hall in Uptown Oklahoma City on 23rd Street. Jeremy, thanks so much for taking the time today. Well, thanks for having me here. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. I thought what we might do maybe to kind of go on this journey is if I could ask you for listeners who may not, maybe have heard of you, but may not be completely familiar with what you do, to maybe just hear a little bit from you about about your music and, and anything that you might want to share about that. Okay, well, I'm Jeremy Thomas, right here from Oklahoma City, and I'm a jazz musician and play a couple of instruments, a multi-instrumentalist, organ, Hammond B3 organ, drums, a little bit of keyboards and bass, so, you know, just kind of do all those things and just like to bring some good music to the city, have some fun. <laughs> oh, I like it, I like it. And I was going to ask if there's, as far as any current developments, if there's anything you wanted to share as far as anything that's, you know, happened in the recent past or any projects you're working on or anything coming up in the oh, future. Oh, man. <clears throat> yeah, we've got a whole lot of stuff we're working on. And I'm glad you said that because uh, here recently, a couple of weeks ago, just released another jazz mixtape, which I have a copy for you, by the way. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, it's called Thomas Street Project Volume 2. So we got uh, Thomas Street Project Volume 1, which it's just taking all the popular songs off the hip-hop and R&B station and taking out all the lyrics. And then I solo over with the organ and, and some keyboards and piano and stuff like that and some bass. So got Volume 2 out, which has some of the latest artists like uh, Chris Brown and Rihanna and some Usher. And, you know, the older one has like Snoop Dogg and Chrisette Michelle and Rick oh, Ross wow. and... And so I just did something just to kind of infuse two different worlds of the millennial generation and then, you know, maybe the baby boomers, you know, it's like oh, yeah. putting them all together to where, uh, 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 you know, they're getting a taste of some live instrumentation. You don't hear much live instrumentation nowadays, but in another sense, music is kind of circling back around to that, but that's a whole other story. So anyways, I've got those jazz mixtapes out. And then, uh, uh, of course, we got the other albums out, Jeremy Thomas Quartet, Drop Top Live, and the solo project, I Am. So, what is that, four? Four records? Oh, wow. Yeah. We got that. And then in the future, in November, we got a big show coming up. November the 10th. uh, We're going to do a a big band recording at the UCO Jazz Lab. Oh, wow. uh, Wow. Be featuring the Jeremy Thomas Quartet big band recording, and I'll be on the organ playing with a twenty-piece orchestra, big oh, band man. orchestra. So, and we're going to dedicate that to the late great Dr. Kent Kidwell. Oh at wow, beautiful! Jazz. So that's going to be a big show. Yeah, is it now? Will the public be able to uh, oh, come yes. to that? So that'll oh, be in a public event. Yes. Oh man, I'm there. I'm telling yes. God willing, I'm here. <laughs> Yeah, so we're working on that right now. We've got Zach Lee and uh, Vince Norman arranging uh, the horn parts and stuff. And so we're basically going to do big band arrangements of some of my original songs, like on Drop Top and stuff like that. So, oh, man. It's going to be different. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> this is going to be great. It's going to be great. And then I thought what we might do is, and I do want to get back at some point with you as far as maybe understanding your perspective in terms of you know the just jazz in general. Uh, you know, when you talk about the millennials and the baby boomers and maybe talk a little bit later, I want to talk about you first, but maybe hear your thoughts on, you know, where, we, where we've been, you know, in terms of jazz and maybe where we are now and where we're headed. But I thought what we do is maybe kind of start and take the long view. I'd love to hear more about how you actually got started, uh, you know, creating the music that you do and just, you know, even if, if that was as a child, yeah. just kind of hearing that story. Oh, man, let's see. Where can I start? You know, what got me into jazz, I'll never forget this. We were driving home. My brother was in uh, 
what was that the honor choir back in junior high? Well, I was in the seventh grade. He was in sixth grade. And they had a concert at Moore West Junior High. This was some time ago. Hmm. And we were driving back to the house. And it was only about a five-minute drive, if that. And on the radio, my father just happened to have it on the jazz station. And the very first tune that I was able to recognize was Herbie Hancock, Cantaloupe Island. Wow. And I heard that song, and I was listening to the drummer, which I had no idea at the time who it was, but I know now is Tony Williams. And so I heard him playing this pattern, and it was like backwards. But it was like funky and swinging at the same time, and I was like, I really like this. <laughs> and so I saw on the radio station, I said, okay, it was 90, what was it? Uh, I forgot the station because it's no longer there anymore. But I think it was 91.7, something like that. But anyways, I went to the house, and, and I had my radio player back then. And back then, we had cassette tapes. So oh, yeah. I used to take a cassette tape and record songs off the radio, and that's how I started getting into the artists and learning who they were and the instruments and just heard the sound I never heard before. So I was 13 years old and just opened up my world. So Oh, man. <laughs> That's a whole different experience. It was. Yeah. That one song. So. <laughs> now, as far, as far as playing instruments, it would be interesting to hear as far as, you know, what your first instrument was that you played and, and how that evolved over time. The first instrument I played was the drums. You know, when I was a kid, I used to take my mother's pots and pans out and spread it and beat it. Just whack it. <laughs> <laughs> but I started playing drums in church when I was five years old. And so I finally had the opportunity to play, and uh, they let me play. And I got on there and just started playing. And I used to play with the kids' choir. We I, there were six other drummers there, and so back then, if you really wanted to play, you had to really kind of prove yourself. And you know, it was, it was almost like a little competition thing because there was other little drummers that would sit there. We'd all sit there with our sticks, just dying to play. And then when it was our turn to play, get just get on and go. <laughs> <laughs> so I started on drums at five and then when I was about seven or eight my father for Christmas bought us a keyboard and so my brother and I uh, we would play this keyboard and then that's when I started to, to discover you know that I was able to play a couple of things on the keyboard and I learned my notes and the keys and, and then that went on from there and then after that uh, how I got to the organ was uh, well, I'll tell you this quick story very quick. So, my father just became pastor of Greater Concord Baptist Church, and we had a musician. I was the drummer. And our church musician, at the time, just got off the organ. She just sat in the audience and uh, wouldn't play. And I only knew how to play, like, two or three songs. And my brother only knew, like, one or two. So, she sat there the whole time and wouldn't get on the organ. So, long story short, I got on the organ, played the whole service, church is jam-packed, and then after that, she just left. Oh, so wow. then after that, it forced me and my brother to be in the situation. It's like, okay, we're the only musicians left. We got a church full of people. So it was a situation of either I'm going to play it or I'm not going to touch it. Oh, wow. But I couldn't help it. I just looked at it and I said, well, I want to play it. So from then on out, I just, every Sunday, just kind of self-taught myself. So Wow. Wow. That's, it, it, it almost it sounds like you were kind of at that point, right? Kind of that fork in the road. Is it it was. Go one way or the other? It was. It was. Yeah. like, okay, go here or there. It's like, okay, I want, I 
really want to learn how to play this thing pretty good, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. What, if I could ask you, if you remember, you know, as far as what it felt, I mean, I, I would imagine that all just kind of happened, but what it felt like for you in terms of the energy of, of, of actually playing in front of people, or what, if you can oh, remember. Oh, man, I, I, I was scared. I remember, I, I mean, I was a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was really shy, and, you know, because I, I would never look at the people back then. I was, just, you know, just wanted to make sure I was playing the right notes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, after you do it for, you know, a couple of years, you kind of kind of break out of it. I don't know. Sometimes I still feel like I'm shy, but I'm really not. I am, but I don't know. But I would play. And uh, but after doing it for a while, whenever you do something for a while, you start to get comfortable with it. So I think I just had to do it for a while and really learn the instrument, and then learn the music, and then learn the flow of the service and how to play. And then it was like, okay, I think I, I can I can handle it. Oh yeah. <laughs> and as far as, as your musical as far as your musical experiences and your uh, and your, your musical journey. It'd be kind of interesting to hear, you know, from there as far as, uh, you know, how that progressed in terms of your, you know, your training and, and just what you did after that as far as your study. Oh, yeah. So, you know, even after that, um, you know, I was really fortunate, you know, in junior high and high school, we had junior high and high school jazz bands. And, you know, even back then, a lot of junior highs and high school didn't really have, like, jazz programs. But I was very fortunate to have that. So, uh after just kind of getting into jazz on my own, then able to kind of work out some of the ideas that I was hearing off the radio at, at that age of 13, 14 years old. Um, we were playing, and then we, we actually played Cantaloupe Island, so I tried to mimic that drum groove I had. Oh, man. And, uh, but really, as I got older and listening to the radio, um, I was hearing a bunch of harmonies and, and, and bebop lines that I, I never knew existed. And then my father, he saw that I was interested, and he bought me my very first jazz record, which was Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, live in Tokyo, 1961 and 62. My goodness. And wow. so that's when I heard Art Blakey and Lee Morgan, uh, 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 Wayne Shorter on trumpet, Jamie Merritt bass, you know. So I heard that group, and I was like, oh, Bobby Timmons on piano. So I heard this group and I was like what is going on then he bought me another record and this is a record that actually really just changed my life he bought me uh, John Coltrane and uh, it was entitled Man Made Miles and mm. they took the record and it happened to be a bootleg recording it's available online now mm. but back then he had to like go to these stores and get it and uh, it was a bootleg recording of John Coltrane with Eric Dolphy in Germany Oh, wow. And then I heard something I've never heard before, which was Elvin Jones on the drums. And I didn't even know it was Elvin, because it didn't say it on the cover. It just said, John Coltrane, Man Made Miles. And the record only had three songs. Oh, <laughs> wow. Those are long compositions. Yeah, right it had three songs. They had Mr. PC, which was like 15 minutes. And then it had Man Made Miles, which was 12 minutes. And then he did My Favorite Things, which was like 20 minutes long. Oh, my goodness. And so, but in that, I heard these triplet polyrhythmic patterns put you know it was infused with swinging and it for me being a drummer it was like the sound of jazz and swing I was always searching for and I just heard these rhythms and I was like hey what is going on so, <laughs> so I hear this and then I'm like man working on these triplet patterns but 
I didn't know who the drummer was, or the, I didn't know who any of the guys were until I got to college. Hmm. And I saw Elvin Jones on a Modern Drummer magazine, and then it said drummer John Coltrane. I said, John, Col- wait a minute. I said, is this the guy? And I started reading it, and it was him. And I discovered McCoy Tyner, and and, uh, 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 and then the other saxophone player was Eric Dolphy when he was doing a quintet, and uh, of course, uh, bass player uh, Jimmy Garrison. So I discovered that, and that record right there took me on. On a whole nother journey. I mean, I studied the record. I studied it. I mean, I studied that more than I did my math homework in school. <laughs> <laughs> so, was it just a matter, really, of just the listening, just the, you know, it listening was, over and over? And, yeah, and, and, it was. I would probably, at that time, I still do it now. I would probably listen more than I actually did practice hmm. because I really wanted to. I wanted the music to embody me and, and, and embody my mind to where it's in my psyche so much to where when I was able to practice and play, I knew I had to at least try to duplicate or mimic what I was hearing. So it's like it can't come out of you unless it gets in you, and the only way it gets in you is by listening. Oh, yeah. So I would just listen and listen and listen and learn and study. I mean, I'd be stuck on the song for about two or three weeks. And I wouldn't move to the next track until I was just ready. And so then after that, then I'd get to the instrument and play, you know, try to work out some patterns. And I would used to record myself hmm. playing. And I would try to match the recording that I had of Elvin or Tony or anybody like that. And if it wasn't close, I'd erase it and I'd do it again. And I would record myself and compare it. It's like, no, it's still, something's not right. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't feel right, you know. So that, oh boy, that, Seemed like that took a while to get. I'm still trying to get it, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> do you still happen to have just out of curiosity? Do you still happen to have any of those recordings now, as far as the ones when you were just, you know, kind of you know listening and then trying to play what you're hearing? I think I do. I, I think I do. They're on a cassette tape. A couple of them. We used to record ourselves a lot. Me and my brothers and I. We used to record ourselves. I think we got a few of them. Oh man, that would be amazing to be able to hear those. To actually, you know, just to, it's oh, like be like time travel, wouldn't it? Going back in oh, time. Oh man, I don't know if you want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, was, I guess I was going to ask you. I, would, I, I wanted to talk a little bit just about the Hammond B three. I know that sometimes if people aren't necessarily really well versed in jazz or are not really familiar mm-hmm. with it, and, it, and if I understand correctly, I don't you know I don't know that much myself other than what I've enjoyed and. But it'd be kind of interesting just to hear, since that is one of the instruments that you are known for, as far as what, you know, what you do with that instrument. Uh, maybe sharing with listeners just a little bit about the, you know, the historical significance of the B three and maybe how it got started and how, you know, in terms of how we, we started to see that, you know, appear in jazz music. Yeah. Well, you know, the Hammond organ, just the instrument itself, was created off of a quote unquote accident. Hmm. Uh, brief history of the instrument, you know, Lawrence Hammond, the inventor of the Hammond organ, uh, he was, he wasn't a musician. He was an inventor. You know, he invented uh, the Hammond deck cards. It would shuffle cards and he invented some other type of things and clocks. He was a clock maker. That was like his main thing. Well, what happened was, and this was back in 1934, he invented this grandfather clock and every time the hour struck, it would play these tones. Hmm. Well, he got to listening to these tones it was playing. He's just like, man, this sounds really good. I wonder what it would sound like if I wired it up to a keyboard. 
So he got this keyboard, he wired up this tone generator from the clock to the keyboard. And then he played these notes and he says, I think I'm going to make an organ out of this. And so he got a patent in 1935 and then boom, the first model uh, Hammond A came out. And uh, it was in big competition with the pipe organ. So it's just like, you know, instead of buying a $45,000 pipe organ, Back then, that's a lot of money. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like you could just buy a $2,500 Hammond organ, which was supposed to be a duplicate of the pipe organ, electronic version of the pipe organ, which it really wasn't. But uh, it was it was selling so well that the pipe organ companies started suing Hammond. Hmm. You know, they said, well, this is not a real organ. And so it, it went down to... Uh, it got to the place where the judge... They were saying, okay, we're going to have a, a listening contest. We're going to blindfold people, and we're going to have one person play the pipe organ, the other person play the Hammond. Hmm. And if the Hammond doesn't get enough votes, you have to stop making it. Oh, wow. So it was like at a NAMM show, like back in 1941 or 42. Mm-hmm. And uh, long story short, they had the same organ player, and they had... You know, organ players blindfolded, like masterful organ player, classical organ player. And so uh, some people are like, okay, that's the pipe. Some people are like, oh, no, that's not the pipe. And it all boiled down to one vote. It's just like they played it, and it was a ham, and they're just like, no, that's the pipe organ. It's like, nope, that's the ham and organ. It won by one vote. Oh, <laughs> so, and then from there, you know, but how it got into jazz, um, you know, you had... Uh, Fats Waller, who was a fantastic organist back in the 40s, you know, he, he as soon as it was getting into the churches, he took it right out and started playing it and uh, big bands and, and things like that. And then from Fats Waller, he had uh, Wild Bill Davis. And Wild Bill Davis, he was kind of like the pop organist of the generation. And then you had Ethel Smith, too. She's the queen of the B3. I mean, she's the baddest female organist you'll ever hear. But uh, Wild Bill Davis really took the instrument and just made it popular. You know, he just played, which back then big band was very popular. But then he he would do some things trio-wise, and he would play a lot of big band sounds on there. But then you got Jimmy Smith, who just took it, and he's the one that really made it a solo instrument by playing, like, horn lines on there. Hmm. You know, he'd take the Leslie off a tremolo, put it on off. You know, the B3 came out 55, Jimmy Smith came out 55. You know, but you had your older models before that. And so uh, Jimmy Smith brought it out there, but he bought an organ, went in the woodshed for eight months, practiced eight hours a day, never came out until eight months later. Then he comes out and says, I think I'm ready to play. Then he starts taking this B3 and these two Leslie's with him. People never seen it before. Oh, wow. But when they heard it, they were like, what is this? To the point where Miles Davis said he was the eighth wonder of the world. And now, from there, Jimmy Smith just completely revolutionized revolutionized the sound of the organ. And now, everybody that came after Jimmy literally patterns themselves off of Jimmy because of what he did. I mean, I don't care what style you do. uh, You're going to hear a little bit of that in Jimmy from what he did 60 years ago. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and as far as what your own experience is, maybe hearing a little bit about, you know, when you started playing jazz on the B3, you know, what that was like for you and, you yeah. know, kind of where, you know, where you were feeling like you wanted to go with that. 
Yeah, you know, I got into jazz organ when I first, I heard it on the radio. And when I first heard it on the radio, it was Larry Goldings and Bill Stewart. And, I, and the first thought that came to my mind was like, that sounds like an organ. And then when he took a solo, I said, that is an organ. I said, wow, I didn't know they did it in jazz. And I thought it was cool. But what really got me into it was uh, Charles Irwin. He was the first jazz organist I heard. And I was at the CD store, and I saw a CD of him. Uh, what was, it was his CD, but the, on the cover of the CD was the most beautiful B3 you've ever seen. Oh, wow. I mean, it was, it was, it, <laughs> it was, it was slick all the way. <laughs> so, slick all the way. So, because of the cover, I bought it, and then I listened to it, and then uh, after I listened to it, uh, this is what got me. You know, it was a quintet. So I says, okay, I'm reading the back and I'm listening to it and he's just, just swinging, just grooving. I says, okay, he's got drummer and well, okay, man, yeah, Charles on the organ and he's got the trumpet player, the saxophone player and the guitar player. And then I was looking, I said, well, who, where's the bass player? And I kept looking for the bass player. And I says, man, they forgot to put the bass player on there. And then it clicked. I said, wait a minute. I said, man, he's doing the bass line on the organ. And that changed everything for me. Man. It changed, that changed, that completely just. So when I found out he was doing the bass, that's when I said, wait a minute, this is a whole nother deal. And that's what got me into it. Oh, so, wow. That record, it's the Charles Irwin, uh, his birthday record. He did a live recording in Chicago, 1997. Oh, wow. Let's check of, that one out. Yeah, I think it's out of print. You know, I think it went out of print with Cannonball Records, and that label shut down. But I have a copy of that. Huh? Wow. <laughs> I'll give you one. That sounds like that's life changing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and is that primarily the instrument when you're doing live performances for the most part? Is are you generally playing the B three, or does that? Um, yeah, uh, it is because what really kind of transitioned me from doing more organ and drums was because nobody was doing it here in Oklahoma. Uh, the last guy to really just kind of take the organ out was Earl Day. And mm. uh, people were telling me, yeah, we haven't seen anybody load a B3 in, since the 80s. And I was like, really? And so uh, they were saying, well, yeah, you, now here you come along 20 years later at the time, you know, back in the early 2000s. They're like, man, you're coming out with this organ. We haven't seen that in 20 years. So I was like, wow, I didn't know that. So... And because of that, you know, and the people, they kind of expect that. So I try to give them what they want. So, okay, if you want to hear some argon, I'll give you some argon. So. Oh, man. I, uh, and I'm wondering, too, do you, I, I'm assuming some of these people that come to hear you play for the first time, that I'm assuming some of these people maybe have not heard that instrument live? Or they, I, you know, it's funny because they'll come up to me, and uh, I remember one lady particularly, she heard me downtown playing. And she came up to me and she said, that's the instrument. <laughs> I said, well, really? And she said, this is, she's like, what is this called? And I said, well, you know, it's a Hammond B3 organ. And she goes, this is the sound I've been wondering what it was since the 60s. I've heard on all the 60s pop songs and rock songs and, you know, funk songs in the 70s. She said, that sound, she said, I've always wondered what that sound was. And so the thing about it is, you don't hear the Hammond in everything. It's in it's it's every, it's definitely in the church gospel, 
blues, jazz, funk, R and B. Even Jay Z had a B three hip uh, in his hip hop show. He had, oh wow! He, he has has a B three player. You definitely hear the country. So it's always in the mix somewhere, and you hear it, but people don't recognize it like they would a piano or a guitar or a mm-hmm. trumpet or sax because it's uh, there's not a lot of guys really putting it out as a forefront instrument. Oh, and so when you don't really hear it soloed a lot, you don't really recognize what it is. But you you hear it because it's always in the background. You know, you always see somebody a big concert. You know, even Garth Brooks, and you look back on stage and you say, "Oh man, there's a Hammond organ right oh, there." Oh, so it'll be an actual V three. I didn't know if it was like a synthesizer yeah. or an emulator or something like yeah. that. Yeah, oh yeah, Th- those guys they want the real deal. Oh. I've rented them. I've rented my V three out to a couple of country concerts downtown. They said, "We need a Hammond V I said, "Okay, I got oh, you." Wow. <laughs> I'm assuming those are not easy to find. I mean, is that are those still in production? Or? Uh, not the originals. They've got the digital ones out by Hammond Suzuki. But the original ones, uh, they quit making those in 75. And so, uh, but they've made so many of them that you could find, uh, you could find a Hammond organ somewhere. But chances are, if you find it, it probably needs to be refurbished and repaired. But you can repair it and get it playing back how it did 50, 60, 70 years ago. Oh, wow. Now, in your opinion, do you, uh, is, do you think there's a difference between the, like the, the new ones now that are digital versus the actual... Uh, Big difference to me because I've studied the instrument. There's a difference because you've basically got analog versus digital in terms of how the sounds are produced. And with the analog sound, you've got the actual tone wheels on the inside producing the sound as it's spinning 60 cycles a second as opposed to the digital ones. You've got a digital motherboard which is actually replaying a sampled sound. Mm-hmm. So it's actually taking the sound that was sampled into it and replaying it. And it completely alters the sonic wave. So the only thing that they're still making that's really similar or basically the same is the Leslie speaker, you know, which is just rotating. And so that's kind of the the uh, the icing on the cake. You gotta have that Leslie. You gotta have. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. And I was wondering, just in terms of how it feels, if I could ask you to, you know, to kind of be inside your mind as, in as much as a person could do that, you know, what does it actually, when you're, when you're, when you're performing, when you're playing, you know, what, if I could ask you to you know, put that into words and some, somehow, I don't want to put you on the spot, but just kind of understanding maybe what it feels like to you, what, what's going on, you know, internally with you oh, when, when you're playing, or does that change? You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, what goes on while I'm playing, it's almost it's a lot of things, really. Uh, I'd probably say sometimes the number one thing that's going on in my mind is synesthesia. And if, for those who don't know what it is, synesthesia is like a cross-wiring of the brain, which I have, to where whenever I hear sound, I see colors. Oh, wow. Or even whenever I see colors, I hear sound. And so as I'm playing or I hear music, it's like the sound is going forth and then it's like reciprocity coming back and it's going back into my ear and I see these colors. And sometimes it, I look crazy on stage sometimes. So I'll be staring off into space, but it's like I'm getting inspired by these colors that I see. And so people are like, what's going on? And I get asked that. I'm like, man, what goes on in your head? <laughs> and then, but it's it's so beautiful. Like, I mean, I it's it's like seeing glory. It's like the glory of God just... And I hear it through the sound as I'm playing, especially when it feels good and it's right. It's just like, oh my God. 
And I have to be careful when I'm listening to music and driving. It, 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 oh, yeah. You know, oh, I, get, I get into it. I just, I kind of get into study mode really quick, but I've learned to balance that out. It was bad when I was younger because I didn't know what was going on. But that's what happened. And what I try to do is just take the people on that journey. It's just like, listen, you may have had a bad day at work or, you know, or maybe something happened while you're at school or you just maybe had a bad day. It's like, you know, come listen to this music. And just let the music just heal your mind of all the stress and the pain. And come on this journey. It's like we're going to another place in the universe that's just going to uplift your soul. Oh, yeah. So that's what I try to take people there. And I can tell you a bunch of stories of, I mean, some stuff, things happen. You know, there's something uh, bigger outside of the music and outside of the notes that really just brings healing to people, you know. Just through sound and vibration. So I really take people on that journey uh, <clears throat> uh, musically, trying to do it harmonically, and even, uh, uh, you know, just playing grooves and tunes and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, but I, I make sure I go there first. And, and uh, I know because when I'm there, it's like, oh, man, you guys got to come. It's like, you just, you just got to go to this place. You know, that is beautiful, man. That is, and I was going to say that's, I, you know, I, I wasn't sure what it was at the time, but actually before I even thought about podcasting and I know I shared this, I don't, I hate to be repetitive and I know this podcast isn't about me, but I, when I, after I moved here, I saw you at the jazz lab and I, I'm usually a very introverted person and I, you know, I'm, I'm very shy in social situations like that. And I didn't know as far as the protocol, but after your concert, Man, I absolutely, I didn't know what was going on in terms of how that was affecting me. I knew something was going on, and I knew I'd never experienced it before in the joy that you were exuding. And I literally walked up on stage and thank you for that. And, and I, I felt kind of silly because I didn't know if I was supposed to do that or not. But I, and what's weird is I've, I've never done that. And I probably won't ever do that again, I don't think. Wow. But it was just, man, it, it really did. I mean, it's, this is way back before I even uh, you know, thought about doing interviews like this. And, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's... I mean that means a lot. You know, whenever whenever that happens, I'm I'm always grateful because I felt like I've actually done my job. Is is just to give you an experience. It's almost like an outer body experience. It's almost like shouting in church. You know, yeah. you just something overcomes you, and you know, you just feel something that you can't explain. You're just like, oh, I mean. Man, I, I mean, I, and I've been fortunate enough to have a couple of people come up to, you know, me and the band and just say, man, you guys took us to a place I can explain. I felt something, you know, uh, I mean, it's crazy. Music is so deep. It's so deep and people don't understand um, how powerful it really is. It's more than just singing your favorite song, which is good. And it's more than getting up dancing or going to parties to it, which is fine. But there's the certain levels to it that just takes you on a journey because, um, well, I mean, I can get in all that. I mean, it, but that's it'll, it'll take me like 38 minutes to, <laughs> to talk about it. But it's so deep because it's it's a gift and it's a universal language. And I tell people all the time, even my students that I teach, it says, you know, why do you think music is a universal language? And they're like, well, because you know it relates to everybody. I said, okay, that's good. It's, uh, you know, and everybody, you know, they can they can comprehend it. I said, yeah, they can comprehend it. I said, but there's something deeper than that. You know, yeah, everybody can relate to it. I don't know one person on planet Earth that does not listen to some kind of music. Oh, yeah. You know, everybody listens to something. I don't care if they're in the village in the middle of nowhere. They're going to have some type of village music. 
you know. So there's always some type of sound that people are attracted to. But it's like music is universal because it comes from a universal God. And it's just meant to just bring us all together. No divisions. It brings us all together. And, you know, and that's what it's meant for. So um, when, when, whenever people come up and they say, man, I just I, you, thank you for that. I feel like I have done my job and I've operated in my purpose. And it's like, okay, that's the greatest fulfillment than any award or any, you know, any other type of thing can do. It's like, okay, somebody was really affected positively by the sounds of this music. Oh, so, yeah. So that's, so thank you for coming to me and saying that. <laughs> that means a lot. Thank you. I'm, I'm thanking you for that. <laughs> I, and what's interesting is I didn't know at the time. I mean, I just, I was feeling all these things. And of course, having not met you and having not heard your thoughts on this, I knew something happened. I mean, I, and I've gone to listen to, you know, and there's, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, performances I've seen and I've enjoyed, but I mean, I knew that there was something uh, there was something else going on, and I didn't know what it was. Wow. I just, I just, I kind of felt like maybe I, at the time I, I didn't know, but I was evidently I must have decided to go on that journey with you, even though wow. I didn't know what we were doing or what was happening. But yeah, because I mean, I, I've thought about that often, even since that time. I mean, wow. and when I found out when after I talked to Stina and she mentioned that I'd have an opportunity, because I didn't know when I reach out to do these interviews, and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to actually be able to. To actually be able to meet you and tell you that story, man, yeah. that's all right. Man, that, that made my day. I'm no lie. That, that just made my day. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I thought what we might do, if it's okay, is I'd love to hear some more of your thoughts as far as just you know what what this means, you know, in terms of what this means to you personally. Yeah. And if you're okay with it, we might take a quick break, and then also like to maybe get just a little bit of thoughts from you as far as yeah. you know in terms of jazz, maybe the jazz scene here in Oklahoma City, just kind of yeah. understanding maybe where we've been, where we are now, and, and where you think we might be headed. Okay. You know, in the future. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Jeremy. Yeah. Absolutely.